Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Dr. Robert Heath, lecturer at the School of Management at the University of Bath, talks about the history and development of Buddhism from its inception in India to the present day. So if any of you have seen the Reduced Shakespeare Company, which, um, as you probably know, managed to do the whole works of Shakespeare in about three-quarters of an hour, I, I've got a task similar to that facing me, because um, I'm going to try and go through um, the history of Buddhism in three-quarters of an hour. And um, uh, it's quite a lengthy and complex history. So what I'll do is I will um, give you a few... Um, uh, bits of information about Buddhism first, and then, uh, then we'll start on the history, if you like. So um, most of you probably know a little bit about Buddhism. You've probably seen statues of, of the, the original Buddha, who's Shakyamuni. Um, you've probably seen pictures of Buddhist monks. Um, there's uh, some novices. They haven't got their head, head shaved. And uh, here's some young ones. And uh, you've probably heard of the Dalai Lama. Um, who's uh, a well-known commentator on world affairs. And uh, you've perhaps seen pictures of Buddhist temples like this in, uh, in Tibet and um, this one in Angkor Wat in Cambodia. And you might even have read Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Um, and uh, you, you might have thought that that's all a bit remote from the world today and uh, not much use to me. Um, and I hope I might change that impression today. So what is Buddhism? Well, as uh, many of you know, Buddhists don't believe in a single all-powerful deity. Um, we do have gods in Buddhism. Do come in. Um, we do have gods in Buddhism, but they're um, functionaries who represent the important powers of the universe, like the sun and the rain and the wind, etc. And they do not direct our lives. Buddhists believe that we and we alone are responsible for directing our lives. Um, and we don't believe in heaven either. Um, at least most of us don't. Um, instead, we believe in reincarnation. Why is that? Well, it's important to remember that Buddhism, like all religions, took on the characteristics of local beliefs in India at the time Shakyamuni lived. And the dominant religion then was Brahmanism, the forerunner of Hinduism, which taught that one would be reborn repeatedly into the world. So this and other ideas were not surprisingly incorporated into Shakyamuni's teachings. Uh, we also believe in karma. Again, this was taught in Brahmanism uh, that the state that you would be reborn into was dictated by your actions in your previous life. And karma, the word karma in Sanskrit, means action. It's the word to describe the consequences of your past actions. I might just add that the um, Buddhist idea of karma does not mean that your fortune, uh, your good luck or bad luck, is dictated by your past causes. We all suffer misfortunes, and it is our karma that dictates how well we overcome them. So the idea that if you lose all your money or are born disabled, it's because of what you did in your past life is frankly nonsense. The way karma works is that if you have good karma, then whatever misfortunes you encounter, uh, you are able to overcome them and lead a positive, happy and value-creating life. On the other hand, if you have bad karma, then when you encounter misfortune, you're unable to overcome it and it drags you down into total misery. 
You've probably also heard that uh, some people practice Buddhism in order to attain enlightenment. Um, now, enlightenment isn't a very easy thing to understand, so it might help if I explain why I practice Buddhism and have done so for the last 25 years. Um, I'm not ashamed to say when I first met it, I thought it was all a bit ridiculous. And uh, I quickly realised that um, it was something not that uh, was just a a simple, um, if you like, guarantee of better life, uh, a better time in the next lifetime. But it was something that actually transformed my life at the time and achieve not just fleeting or transient happiness, but a much more fundamental level of happiness. I also realised it enabled me to understand better how the world works and how it can be a better place. In other words, you might say I uh, practised in order to fulfil my potential as a member of the human race. Now, in this lecture, I'm going to explain some of the fundamental concepts of Buddhism by taking through a, you through a journey of how it has developed over the last 2,500 years. And for those who are interested, my main source is a book edited by, edited, I'll get it right in a minute, edited by Heinz Betchert and Richard Gombridge, entitled The World of Buddhism. So first, a bit of terminology. Uh, it's said there are three jewels in Buddhism. The Buddha, uh, who is the teacher. The Dharma, which is what he teaches and the Sangha, which is the community of people who practice Buddhism. So starting with the Buddha. Uh, The Buddha was Shakyamuni. Um, uh, His name was Siddhartha Gautama, uh, and he was a wealthy crown prince born around 5 to 66 in Limbini near Kapilvastu, which was probably in Nepal. It's not exactly known where it was. Um, Here he is. Uh, or here is a typical representation of him. Um, interestingly, he was only first depicted, do come in, as a statue around the first century AD, which makes you wonder how they knew what he looked like, um, since it was 600 years since he'd lived. Anyway, Shakyamuni was married and he had a son, and uh, as he grew up, he was greatly troubled by the sufferings of sickness, old age, and death and resolved to achieve immortality. So around the age of 29, he left his home and became a wandering beggar, eventually settling in Bihar in eastern India. Here he studied yoga and then for six years practised strict asceticism, fasting, holding his breath and so on. This didn't seem to work, so he left and went to Sarnath near Varanasi. It is here that he supposedly sat under a fig tree around 531 BC, focusing on the mysteries of birth and death and rebirth, and became enlightened. So the second uh, jewel is the Dharma. And uh, Shakyamuni started with what are called the Four Noble Truths. Um, The first noble truth is that everything is suffering. In other words, all all existence comprises some form of suffering. The second is that the origin of suffering is desire. Uh, The third is that there exists an end to suffering, which uh, he called nirvana. And I stress these are his early teachings. 
And nirvana means blowing out, um, um, blowing out the fires of greed, hatred and delusion. And nirvana is characterised as attaining peace. And in some forms of Buddhism, it's said to only be achieved when you cease to be reborn. In other words, cease to exist. And the fourth jewel is that there is a path defined by the Buddha which leads to enlightenment or nirvana. So the second part of, of Shakyamuni's early dharma or doctrine defines the path to enlightenment. Um, this is known as the Eightfold Path. And uh, it's right view, right intention and resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness. And uh, if you've got those all right, then you get to the eighth, which is right concentration. And that in turn leads to enlightenment. Um, This is also known as the middle path or the middle way. Now, the big question is, how do you achieve all these right things? And... um, This is where we come across the first problem. None of Shakyamuni's teachings were written down during his lifetime. They were all orally transmitted, and it's generally said he preached over 80,000 sutras or teachings. And the first Buddhist council is believed to have met within a few months of his death, around 486 BC, to collect and rehearse these teachings. The second Buddhist council did not convene until over 100 years later. The first writings recording the Buddha's teachings were by monks some centuries after the death of of, uh, Shakyamuni. The largest of these, what's called the Pali Canon, because it's written in Pali, was not written until 100 BC, nearly 400 years after Shakyamuni's death. So this is one reason why there are so many different interpretations of Buddhism and different Buddhist groups in the world. Now, early teachings by Shakyamuni were uh, essentially about suppressing desires, as I said earlier. The idea was that earthly desires are the cause of all suffering. Buddhists were taught that to master various precepts, that they were, sorry, they were taught to master various precepts or rules of discipline that enabled one to attain nirvana and cease to exist. The first five precepts are for uh, all people, and basically they get you reborn as a human as opposed to a beetle or a frog or anything else. Um, The first one is not to kill, not to steal, not to commit unlawful sexual intercourse, not to lie, and not to drink intoxicants. Um, So uh, that's what you had to do if if you basically wanted to be reborn. As as you can see, not a little similarity to some of the Ten Commandments. And um, it's hard to know, actually, whether the Ten Commandments in some way derive from this or this derive from the Ten Commandments or what. But um, uh, as you can see, this basically is in the same way as the Ten Commandments, a sort of um, uh, direction for how you should live your life. Now, the eight precepts are for lay believers, but only on certain days. Those are not to kill, not to seal, not to have any sex, not to lie, not to drink intoxicants. Additionally, not to wear ornaments or perfume or listen to singing or watch dancing. Uh, Not to sleep on an elevated or broad bed. I have no idea why. Um, And not to eat irregularly, i.e. afternoon. So um, 
those, again, I suppose that's all right if those are a few days. If, however, you wanted to practice properly, you had to become a novice, and then you had ten precepts. And um, it gets worse, don't worry. Um, and in fact, it's, it's a bit of a cheat because they've just divided um, ornaments and perfume and listening, watching, dancing. Um, so it's all of those. And in addition, uh, you're not to have any valuables such as gold or silver. So this enables you to become a novice. If you want to become a monk and practice properly, there are 220 precepts for monks and nuns, and in practice up to 355 rules that need to be followed. So as you can see, attaining enlightenment using these early teachings wasn't exactly straightforward, and it certainly wasn't something you could do while you got on with your day-to-day life. So let's talk a little bit about how the various Buddhist schools developed in India under these precepts. The precepts were designed to help you rid the body of all desires and so rid yourself of suffering. But with these extremely complex precepts, it's not surprising that splits started to occur amongst practitioners of Buddhism. After the first Buddhist council, two schools emerged, Theravada and, I always get this wrong, Mahasamgika. Um, Theravada monks stuck pretty rigidly to the Buddha's teachings and saw enlightenment coming only from strict adherence to practicing the immensely complex behavioral precepts, um, up to, uh, in fact, some orders, 500 precepts. The Mahasamgika sought to simplify the Buddha's teachings in accordance with the desires of their practitioners. And these splits continued, and according to tradition, there were at least 18 schools of Buddhism in India by the 3rd century BC, and quite probably many more. You also have to remember that Buddhism was by no means the only religion around at the time, and many rulers during this period were content to support any type of Buddhism. Most notable was King Ashoka, whose son brought Buddhism to Sri Lanka around 250 BC. And uh, to this day, Sri Lankan Theravada Buddhism sticks closely to Shakyamuni's original idea of achieving enlightenment by ridding the mind and body of earthly desires. But Ashoka played another very important role in the development of Buddhism. Uh, You see, Shakyamuni regarded himself as an ordinary but enlightened mortal human being, not a god. And he's said to have strictly forbidden his followers from worshipping him or building images of him. But as the religion spread through India, the places where Shakyamuni taught became regarded as sacred and people started making pilgrimages to them. Now, King Ashoka encouraged this, dividing Shakyamuni's cremated remains and interring them into vast stupas or monuments at the various sacred places he taught. Um, This one is in Sarnath, where he supposedly attained enlightenment and... um, and here's another one, which is in Sanchi. And I expect if you've been to India, you've probably seen many, many of these vast and very beautiful um, stupas. Eventually, this led to an even greater schism, both of the Dharma, the teachings, and the Sangha, the community. Um, but let me, before I get to that, let me define, let me explain what the Sangha is. Uh, the Sangha is the third jewel, um, and a defining feature of early Buddhism is the groups of individuals who practice the religion. India, even today, has an immensely powerful caste system. 
and this was reflected in Buddhism. The early uh, practitioners comprised four groups in descending order. Monks, nuns, laymen and laywomen. Of these, the Sangha, those who had accepted the Buddha's teachings, really comprised monks monks and nuns and eventually only monks. So it became the case that only monks who devoted their lives to the Dharma by practising the 220 or 355 or 500 precepts were able to attain nirvana. And these monks, of course, tended to withdraw more and more from life, becoming centred on their own enlightenment. So here we have a potentially unstable situation. A large proportion of the population is making pilgrimages to the sacred places where Shakyamuni taught. And at the same time, any chance of their becoming enlightened is receding further and further into the distance, as this requires them to adopt a monastic life and follow ever more complex precepts. So you have a major schism at this point. Around the first century, this unstable situation led to the formation of a completely new group. This group was dissatisfied with the self-centred nature of Buddhism, where only those who effectively shut themselves off from the world could attain enlightenment, and felt that the religion was losing sight of the original purpose of Shakyamuni, which was for all people to attain enlightenment. Describing strict adherence to the precepts rather rudely as Hinayana, which means lesser vehicle, they named their form of Buddhism Mahayana, which means greater vehicle. Now, the defining characteristic of Mahayana Buddhism was twofold. First, rather than enlightenment being seen as being available only to those who excluded themselves from the world, they taught that all people could aspire to enlightenment, not simply those who practice the precepts. Second, they taught that enlightenment was, not, was found not in shutting yourself off from the world and from, uh, its, from desires, but in actively embracing the phenomena of the ever-changing world. Thus, the Dharma of Hinayana, which taught that earthly desires are the cause of suffering, was, became reversed into the new Dharma earthly desires can be transformed into enlightenment. This also gave rise to the idea of a bodhisattva, a person dedicated to bringing enlightenment and happiness to others. So, I mean, it's pretty radical, as you can see. It's a little bit like, you know, the famous conductor Sir Simon Rattle suddenly deciding to give up the Berlin Philharmonic and start a pop group. It's um, a complete shift in the direction in which um, Buddhism uh, is going. Now, the Mahayana Buddhists um, also created their own sutras. These are often called pseudo-canonical in that they were not part of the original Pali canon. These perfection of wisdom um, texts, which probably date from the 1st century BC, um, so not not very far later than the Pali canon, Um, may have been taught by Shakyamuni and never transcribed, or they may have been taught by monks who'd been influenced by Shakyamuni. And uh, here are some examples. The Diamond Sutra, uh, which talks about the nature of perception. The Heart Sutra, 
which refers to the ultimate truth that is by definition beyond our comprehension. And uh, the Lotus Sutra. And the Lotus Sutra contradicts the whole concept of nirvana, suggesting that life is eternal, um, that the Buddha is immortal uh, and attained his uh, enlightenment in a far distant lifetime. It also alludes to his highest teaching and talks of a multiplicity of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, indicating that enlightenment is open to all people. Added to this, there are various tantric teachings, procedures and rituals derived from Indian Tantra that are meant to be able to aid the path to enlightenment. So with all this confusion, what happened to Buddhism in India? Sorry, a bit of a fuzzy picture of India, but I think you can recognise it. You have to bear in mind, as I said earlier, that Buddhism was not the only religion in India, and it was and is not in the nature of Buddhists to oppress other religions. Religions such as Brahminism continued to flourish, uh, and Hinduism developed between the 2nd and 6th century AD, followed by Islam in the 8th century. As for Buddhism, with the death of the teacher, Arai, yeah, there's another one I didn't practice, Arai, Arya Sima, sorry about that, in the 6th century, it declined rapidly in mainland India, where it now hardly exists. It did, however, spread quite rapidly. Uh, it spread to the south, um, to Sri Lanka, as early as 300 AD. Uh, when King Ashoka's son brought it uh, to the island. Sometime later, it spread to Burma and then uh, amongst the Mons people, and later still it spread to Laos, Cambodia and Thailand, where until recently it was a state religion, and it still is the state religion in Thailand. One might ask if this has been responsible for the recent instability in Thailand. Theravada Buddhism, uh, which is the nature of this Buddhism, um, that spread to Southeast Asia encourages a passive and long-term view of life. But the diligent practice of Theravada Buddhism requires one to detach oneself from life and, as I said earlier, obey a wide range of restrictive practices. In Thailand, there are 227. And that's something that young people in particular would find impossible to embrace. Now, another movement was Northwest. There we go along the Silk Road. And the dating of stupas in this direction suggests this might also have started as early as 300 BC. It moved through what is now Kashmir and Pakistan onto Afghanistan. And perhaps because it encountered Greek religions and religions such as Judaism and later Christianity, all of which were open to ordinary people to practice, it seems to have been more the Mahayana tradition that was most successful in this move. And to help you, I've coloured that in magenta. So the, the Theravada tradition, the, the Hinayana tradition is in red, and that's the um, Mahayana tradition. And it's also important to note that up until now, there were no statues of Buddha. Um, as I said, Shakyamuni forbade his followers from worshipping his image. And so only what were called naturalistic representations, a, a footprint, an empty seat, a parasol or a Bodhi tree, um, were used to denote the Buddha. And um, here, for example, is a footprint. Um, these are the, the feet of Buddha portrayed here. 
But between the 1st and 4th century AD, statues of the Buddha started to be erected. This was around the time when Alexander the Great's army reached northern India, and possibly it happened in response to the Hellenistic tradition of depicting gods in statue form. Whatever the reason, statues and images of Shakyamuni started to appear, and um, you'll perhaps remember the uh, destruction in 2001 of this massive rock-carved Buddha in Afghanistan. Although Mahayana in nature, Buddhism was still largely confined to monasteries, uh, monks in monasteries, and it survived in this form in the northwestern countries until as late as the 13th century AD, when eventually uh, these countries adopted Islam. Another move um, was northeast um, through Nepal into um, Tibet. It's not possible to date this precisely, but it was probably around the time of King Ashoka, about 250 BC. Sometime later, it moved into Tibet and then east also into Bhutan. Buddhism continues to flourish in Nepal alongside Hinduism and is the dominant religion in both Tibet and Bhutan. Um, Tibetan Buddhism is something of a hybrid between Mahayana and Hinayana. The Dharma is definitely Mahayana, using the perfection of wisdom sutras and also a number of tantric practices. But according to uh, Per Kavern in the world of Buddhism, the Sangha, the people who practice, comprise monks and other pseudo-monastic priestly types. And the extent to which lay people in Tibet were able to attain full enlightenment was limited. I say was because, as most of you know, the Dalai Lama, the spiritual leader of Tibetan Buddhism, was forced to flee Tibet because of the invasion by China. And the present centre of Tibetan Buddhism is in Dharamsala in northern India. Tibetan-type Buddhism also continues to thrive in in Nepal and Bhutan, and many of you will be familiar with the um, prayer flags um, and the prayer wheels, Uh, You'll have seen those probably on uh, documentaries. And you might also be familiar with uh, the chant Om Mani Padme Hum, which means hail to the jewel in the lotus. Uh, Incidentally, this isn't the jewel in the lotus sutra. This is um, thought to be um, uh, the the lotus Buddha, who was um, another Buddha. There are also Tibetan groups throughout the Western world, and indeed there's one Jamyang right here in Bath. Is anybody here from Jamyang? No? Okay. So, the next move was north into China. This is arguably the most significant move for Mahayana Buddhism along the Silk Road into China. It seems to have taken place during the first two centuries A.D., But its greatest growth was in what is called the period of disunity during the 4th to 6th centuries AD. This development is significant because, as I said earlier, Buddhism had always in the past tended to be integrated with local religions and belief. And in China, having existed existed mainly among foreigners for, for some hundreds of years... It took on greater importance around the 4th century when it became integrated with the beliefs of both Taoism and Confucianism. These are two very different philosophical religions. Taoism, taught by Lao Tzu, 
is an esoteric philosophy that expounds the Tao or the way. Uh, This is the mystical element that underlies all phenomena in the universe and determines the fate of all individuals. The ideals of Tao are characterised by passivity and withdrawal from society in search of immortality and supernatural powers. Confucianism, taught by Confucius in the 5th century BC and modelled on the behaviour of the Duke of Chu, does the reverse. It emphasises the importance of social relationships and the proprieties and obligations that should exist between parent and child, siblings, husband and wife, teacher and disciple and friends and so on. It was very popular with the government in China as it encouraged the development of a stable and well-ordered society. So Taoism and Confucianism don't really overlap with one another and were able to exist together for several centuries. Of course, they're widely differing in nature, one focusing on mysticism and the other on ritual and social behaviour, meant they had quite different influences on the way Buddhism evolved. The golden age for Buddhism in China is said to be during the time of the great teacher Tian Tai during the 6th century AD. Tian Tai retained adherence to the monastic Hinayana precepts, but unified what were three different Buddhist groups in China by radically reinterpreting the Buddha's Dharma based upon the Lotus Sutra. Using the Lotus Sutra, Tian Tai developed two profound explanations for the way in which we live our life. The first of these is the nine levels of consciousness. Tian Tai taught that Consciousness is everything. The first five levels are our physical senses. So sight, hearing, smell, touch and taste. Then we have our thoughts, the accumulation of the five senses into images. And then at seven we have our feelings or the spiritual world. Thus, feelings dominate thoughts. Interestingly, this is an idea which we in the West have only accepted since 1980. So it's something that's actually um, quite alien to many Western um, people. Then at eight, we have karma, the accumulated causes from past lives. Feelings and thoughts are dominated by karma, so your past actions direct your feelings and thoughts and thereby your behaviour and your happiness. Finally, at number nine, there is your Buddha nature, your Buddha wisdom, the wisdom and power of the universe itself. So your karma can really only be overcome by by tapping into Buddha wisdom. And the practice of Chinese Buddhism focused not on moderating your behaviour, as in uh, Shakyamuni's original um, Buddhism, but in trying to activate your Buddha wisdom and mitigate the karma you've created in your past lifetimes. The second concept that Tiantai introduced was the idea of the ten worlds. original idea of the ten worlds was we live predominantly in one of ten different life states or worlds. There are four lower worlds, and the lowest of these is hell, the most deluded state of life, in which suffering is the greatest. Next you have animality, when you behave like an animal with no thought for the consequences of your behaviour. Third, you have hunger, a state 
where you crave material acquisitions and possessions but are never really satisfied by them. And then you have anger. And anger isn't getting cross or annoyed or shouting. It's actually a state in which you wish to impose your will on others. So these are the four lower worlds. Um, You then have two middle worlds. And these are tranquility when you seek to disengage from the world and rapture characterised by alternate happiness and sadness. Interestingly, these are the worlds Westerners regard as being most likely to give them happiness. And of course they do not. Tranquility can really only be maintained by withdrawing from interaction with the world. And over time it becomes sterile and dreary. Rapture, by definition, can only exist if your periods of intense happiness exist alongside equal periods in which you're not happy. So T and Tai also define three higher worlds. Learning, a state where you seek to understand the truth within life. Realisation, sorry, realisation, a state where you understand the truth within life. And then Bodhisattva, a state where you dedicate your life to teaching others the truth within life. Now, each of these nine worlds can be either positive or negative. So, for example, positive animality is when you wish to procreate. Positive hunger is when you wish to eat and so on. Conversely, negative learning learning is when you misinterpret teachings. And negative bodhisattva is when you help others simply in order to make your own life better. And Tiantai taught that we exist in all of these worlds at all times. If the eight higher worlds are negative, then we're in hell. However, if all nine worlds are positive, then you're in the tenth world, which is Buddhahood, the highest life state equating to enlightenment. After Tian Tai's, uh, sorry, after Tian Tai's Chinese, sorry, after Tian Tai, Chinese Buddhism flourished under the great teacher Dengyo. However, Its influence moved further east to Vietnam and also west back to Tibet. But on mainland China, it became heavily dependent upon mysticism through the Tao influence. And its practitioners retreated to remote monasteries, again reflecting Hinayana behaviour. And of course, all religion was expunged by the Maoist revolution in China. And nowadays, Tiantai's style of Chinese Buddhism exists only in countries like Vietnam and also in Korea, which was the next move. So the next move was north to Japan. It probably, Buddhism probably reached Korea and Japan from China sometime in the 8th century AD. Japan at the time was a very feudal society. You had the lords at the top, uh, the uh, men in the middle, and the women very much at the bottom. Um, early Buddhism was restricted to the court and the samurai, who were the nobility. And Buddhism was closely linked with Shinto, which is a form of ancestor worship, which is still the state religion in India. Oh, sorry, in Japan. Sorry, thank you. <laughs> uh, Shinto is a form of ancestor worship, I think I said that. 
Um, Buddhism was practiced in order, to bring good to, in order to bring good fortune to the land and was characterized by a high level of mysticism and taught absolute devotion to your leaders and teachers in line with feudal society. So as you can imagine, the government of Japan thought this was an excellent uh, religion as it uh, taught everybody to stay exactly in their right social classifications. So after various phases called the Nara and Heian periods, uh, the Kamakura period started around the 12th century in Japan. By then, three main practices had emerged. The first of these was the Jodo or Nembutsu sect, also known as the Pure Land sect. This was a practice for ordinary people and taught that happiness was not achievable in this lifetime and could only be achieved by surrendering to the Buddha Amida and being reborn in the western paradise of the Pure Land. The Pure Land sect taught that this could be achieved by repeating the mantra, Namo Amida Butsu, I devote myself to the Buddha Amida. And there's, a, as you can see, a fairly large statue of him in Japan. And uh, Amida was uh, responsible for the origination of traditions such as the No Theatre, which any of you who been to Japan might have seen. The second practice was Zen. Zen was a mystical practice originating in China. It was called Chang there, and in Korea it was called Son. Zen is based on seated meditation, which allows you to re-examine your mind. So it's examine your mind. The ultimate objective of practicing Zen was to enter nirvana by ceasing to be reborn in this world. It taught that supreme enlightenment is wordlessly transmitted from mind to mind. And at that time, it was a practice only available to samurai and other nobles. Zen gave rise to uh, a number of rituals, and uh, first amongst those, of course, is the tea ceremony. That, was, that came from uh, the Zen religion. A third group, the Tendai or Shingon sect, was a monastic sect which founded itself, which based itself on Tendai's teachings of the Lotus Sutra. Uh, And this is important because it gave rise to a fourth practice, which is Nichiren Buddhism. This arose towards the end of the 13th century, propagated by the monk Nichiren, who was born in 1222. Nichiren studied the Lotus Sutra at Mount Hei for 16 years, and in 1253 realised that the title of the Lotus Sutra Amyoho Rengekyo was itself the summary of the entire contents of the sutra and if chanted could lead directly to enlightenment. And if you uh, try to translate it, Myo symbolises the mystic uh, unseen world and non-existence. And uh, Ho stands for the phenomenal manifest world and existence or life. Renge, the lotus flower, symbolises the simultaneity of cause and effect. Uh, The lotus is the only plant to flower and seed at the same time. And also, since the lotus blooms from mud and filth, it symbolises the potential for enlightenment to come forth from the lowest and most degraded members of society. And then Nam means I devote myself, and Kyo means sutra or teaching. So a literal translation is effectively, I devote myself to the teaching which embodies the principles of eternal life and cause and effect.
So Nichiren taught that the practice of reciting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo was the true path to enlightenment, one which anyone could do regardless of their status or rank. At the time, Japan was under threat by, by invasion from Mongol hordes from the mainland China, and Nichiren was convinced that the practice of elitist Zen and oversimplified Nembutsu was responsible for this perilous situation. He believed the Lotus Sutra was the Buddhist's highest, Buddha's highest teaching, but saw the interpretations of sages such as Tiantai and Dengyo as far too complex for ordinary people to understand. He was also outraged that women in Japan should be excluded from all forms of Buddhism. Not surprisingly, he was very unpopular with the authorities who openly challenged him to debate and were frequently defeated. They attempted to execute him in 1271, but a lightning bolt is said to have struck the executioner. They then exiled him to Sado Island. Has anybody been to Japan? Have Have you been to Sado Island? It's the most frightful place on earth, apparently. And um, they, it was so hostile, they assumed he would die. But he survived and was finally pardoned in 1274. And in 1279, he inscribed the Daiga Honzen, a scroll which shows all ten worlds in their positive state and so represents enlightenment. And he died in 1282. So, trying to sum this up, if you, th- if you think about the Dharma and the Sangha, here is my rather simplistic summary of the four main Buddhist groups that exist now uh, in the world. The simplest Dharma is probably that of Theravada, which is behaviour-based. Um, but the practice of Theravada is really only available to those who uh, are prepared to enter monastic life. Um, There is a Theravada school in Bradford-on-Avon, if anybody's interested in learning more about this. At the other end of the scale, um, Zen is um, characterised by a mystical and transcendental dharma. Um, And essentially, Zen, as I said earlier, is is to do with the mystical and um, uh, supernatural, if you like, transmission of enlightenment. Um, the the uh, Dharma of Zen, sorry, the practice of Zen, seated meditation, is, is however easily available to lay people. And there are Zen masters uh, throughout the world and, and uh, in the UK as well. Uh, Tibetan Buddhism is also available to lay practitioners, but the Dharma is complex and multi layered, and like Theravada, study of the full teachings requires monastic seclusion. As I mentioned earlier, there's a lay Tibetan group, Chamyang, active here in Bath. And uh, then finally, there's the Buddhism I practice, which is Nichiren Buddhism. The Dharma, or teaching for this practice, comprises the many writings of Nichiren himself and is relatively simple and comprehensible. The Sangha is quite unusual because it's a lay Buddhist organisation, SGI, standing for Sokogakai International, the Society for the Creation of Value. The leader of SGI, Daisaku Ikeda, is a world-renowned humanitarian and at this moment there are about 20 million SGI members in 190 countries throughout the world. 
Uh, we practice by chanting Namiha Rengekyo not only in our own homes, but at regular meetings where we hold discussions about life in general and our experience of using the practice. We also hold meetings to study the, the writings of Nichiren. And uh, I've brought a leaflet with me if anybody's interested, um, if you're interested in taking one, you're very welcome to. So, that is, as I said, a, a very fast spin through the history and origins of Buddhism. And uh, it brings you to these um, uh, four groups. I should apologise um, to anybody who represents other groups. There are literally thousands of other um, traditions of Buddhism in the world. And uh, I should apologise for not having been through those, but that would have taken me several days um, in a lecture. So thank you for coming to this, and uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions you have. <coughs>